From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. They learn those qualities and character-building opportunities, I guess, that detasseling provides. I mean, we're going to lack that in our rural communities now that kids can't do detasseling. This week on the show, a story from Harvest Public Media about how large-scale seed companies are hiring temporary migrant workers to do a farm task that has traditionally been a summer job for local teens. And we head to the kitchen for a step-by-step guide to preserving those beautiful summer tomatoes. All that and more is just ahead. Stay with us. Thanks for listening to Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young. Let's start the show off with food and farming updates from Harvest Public Media. It's been more than a year since President Biden signed the American Rescue Plan Act, which promised $4 billion in debt relief for black and brown farmers. As Harvest Public Media's Dana Cronin reports, that funding is still in limbo. The recently signed Inflation Reduction Act repealed and replaced that debt relief for farmers of color after multiple lawsuits were filed by white farmers alleging discrimination. It's still unclear how the new funding package will be distributed. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack says they're trying to figure that out before October, when the moratorium on farm foreclosures may be lifted. We want to be in a position prior to that, should it happen, to be able to provide some direction on how we're going to administer at least a portion of this effort. The Inflation Reduction Act directs $3 billion to, quote, economically distressed borrowers of any race. I'm Dana Cronin, Harvest Public Media. An annual survey shows U.S. commercial beekeepers have lost 39 percent of their honeybee colonies this year. The nonprofit Bee Informed Partnership, which conducted the survey, says that's about average in recent years. Randall Cass is the bee specialist for Iowa State University's Extension Office. He says prairie land that's been plowed up for agriculture uses poses a threat to bee survival. Bees feed off of nectar and pollen from flowers. So poor forage would mean that there's just not enough flowers for them to collect from. Uh, And here in Iowa, that's a major issue. We definitely got poor forage availability because so much of our land is put into agricultural production. Cass adds that parasites like varroa mite and exposure to pesticides used in fields are another two major factors that have caused hive loss. According to the USDA, commercial honeybee colonies pollinate at least $15 billion worth of food crops each year. Much of the Great Plains are in a drought. That's killing crops and hurting farmers. The dryness is also draining lakes and rivers, revealing objects typically buried by water. Harvest Public Media's Elizabeth Rembert reports. If you're on the Missouri River near Vermilion, South Dakota, you could come across the skeleton of the North Alabama steamboat. It's usually buried by several feet of water, but this year, it's peeking out above the waterline. Tom Downs with the Missouri National Recreational River says the North Alabama sank in October 1870 after hitting a huge log. Downs says every once in a while, low water levels help people rediscover the ship and steamboat history. Yeah, I think it stirs the imagination to think about a day when steamboat travel was the ticket. You know, that's how you got up and down the river. It's not the only thing the drought has uncovered. In Texas, dinosaur tracks have emerged. For Harvest Public Media, 
I'm Elizabeth Rembert. Thanks to Dana Cronin, Excaret Nunez, and Elizabeth Rembert for those reports. the summer months, we've been hearing more about algae blooms in Midwestern lakes. Blue-green algae can produce toxins that make people sick and even kill pets. The only way to know if a bloom is toxic is to test, but not all states are routinely doing so. As Harvest Public Media's Eva Tesfai reports, some private and volunteer efforts are helping to fill that gap by doing their own testing. What's our next point? North Shore? North Shore. Awesome. Student employees from the Lilly Center are headed out on Lake Wawasee in northern Indiana. Okay, water temperature is 25.7. They are testing for algal toxins and the conditions that produce them. The Lilly Center has been testing lakes in Kosciuszko County weekly for the last 15 summers. It recently started sharing that information in a newsletter so lake residents and visitors can swim safely. And the residents of Lake Wawasee love their lake, including Cindy Peterson. She takes part in the local conservation group and even offers up her boat to the researchers. We're going to lose this lake. It's going to become a dead lake if we don't maintain it. And that's what they're doing with all this testing is how can we make sure that doesn't happen. But testing doesn't come cheap. The Lilly Center for Lakes and Streams is entirely funded by donors, the pharmaceutical Lilly family being one of them. Much of the funding comes from the well-off residents of Lake Wawasee. Massive homes and expensive boats scatter across the lakefront. Jed Harvey is in charge of the testing program. The science is kind of tricky because you have to, often you do have to follow the money, know where it's coming from, know to see even what gets done. But we're really blessed around here to be surrounded by a lot of people who really care about the lakes. Thousands of dollars from these residents went towards designing a buoy that collects essential algae data in real time. Most lakes aren't as lucky. In the Midwest, funding is often limited for state algae testing programs. The Indiana Department of Environmental Management is only able to routinely test 18 lakes where people swim. This doesn't include Lake Wawasee. Kristen Arnold is the chief of the Water Assessment Planning Branch. We have a very specific goal of protecting public health at those swimming beaches, and that's how we kind of keep this program on a smaller scale. Many other states in the Midwest only test after a bloom has been reported. In Missouri, Lynn Milberg with the Department of Natural Resources says there isn't enough funding to test regularly. Our uh, water quality monitoring group, they they do not have any dedicated staff to do this. So whenever something comes up, you know, they have to find somebody that's available, squeeze it in in between projects. The Lakes of Missouri volunteer program takes on some of the burden. It's got about 200 volunteers who test 65 lakes across Missouri. Tony Thorpe, the program manager, says that the group started testing for blue-green algae about seven years ago. And he says the problem isn't going away. If we listen to the climate science, uh, it seems to indicate that this is only going to get worse. And, you know, water is a scarce resource. The volunteer program, which is run by the University of Missouri and supported by various state agencies, can't do it all. 
The group only tests for algal toxins about eight times a year. Thorpe says he knows there are lakes that need more testing. The situation in Missouri and elsewhere is exactly why Ann Scheckinger of the Environmental Working Group argues states and federal government should be doing more. Any lake that's publicly accessible, that should really be the state or the federal government's job to do the testing, not the people who live on the lake. You know, it's a public resource. Back in Indiana, Harvey says that the Lilly Center's local testing has been working really well for the lakes in Kosciuszko County. But the impact of climate change on blooms could make it difficult for local groups to keep up. As blooms like this increase, it may be something where, in many places, the state will be needed to step up. Because, Harvey says, there are a lot of lakes in Indiana, and the Lilly Center can't get to them all. For Harvest Public Media, I'm Eva Tasfai. Blue-green algae is currently being monitored locally by Indiana Department of Environmental Management. You can view test results for lakes in your area at in.gov slash idem slash algae. And we'll include that link on our website, eartheats.org. I'm Kate Young. We'll be back in a moment. summertime draws to a close, the season's fresh produce is still rolling in. For many of us, this means delicious, vine-ripened Midwest tomatoes. Today, we're going to learn how you can preserve that precious harvest to enjoy throughout the winter months. That's right, at long last, we're going to can tomatoes. Now, as far as canning projects go, Tomatoes may not seem as exciting as, say, hot salsa, strawberry jam, or even pickles. But I assure you, home canned tomatoes are far superior to store-bought. The deep flavor of those sun-kissed beauties really does translate to the finished product. I have done side-by-side comparisons with the same recipe made with home canned tomatoes and then with store-bought ones, and I could really taste the difference. I mean, it makes sense when you start with high-quality ingredients, you can taste it. If you don't grow tomatoes yourself or you don't grow enough for canning, check with local farmers in your area and see if you can get a deal for a bulk purchase of canning tomatoes. Often farmers will have seconds that they'll be willing to sell you at a reduced price. I have found that around 25 pounds of tomatoes will fill a canner of seven quart jars. So. Let's get started. Fair warning, this is a bit of an involved process, but it's not difficult, and it's very satisfying to see your finished product cooling on the countertop. If you've ever wanted to learn how to do this, now is your chance, so settle in for some step-by-step instructions.
First things first, you want to clean up your kitchen thoroughly, wipe down all the counters, start with a clean working space. And then you'll want to gather all of your equipment and supplies. Seven one-quart jars, large canner, a jar lifter, 25 pounds of tomatoes, a towel, a baking rack, a small cloth made of t-shirt material, paring knife, a slotted spoon and a ladle, a wooden spoon, measuring spoons, some lemon juice or some citric acid, the seven rings and the seven flat lids, a special canning funnel, two pots, a bowl, and some ice. Don't worry, we'll go over each one of these and we've got the full recipe on our website and that's eartheats.org. We'll start with the jars which need to be washed first. You wanna make sure that these are official canning jars. They need to be ball jars or mason jars. You can't just reuse you know, a jar that spaghetti sauce came in or whatever. You need to get canning jars. They can withstand the temperatures of the canning process and they have a specific shape at the bottom of them that allows them to not sit really flat on the bottom of the pot that you're boiling them in when you're doing the canning. You should also inspect each jar for any hairline cracks or any nicks or chips around the rim of the jar because that could interfere with a proper seal. You'll need a canning vessel this is a large, usually enamel-lined pot that holds seven-quart canning jars, and it has a little metal wire basket in the bottom that your jars sit on, and you can use it to lift the jars out. The canning pot has two lines on it, one towards the bottom third of the pot and one at the top third of the pot. And for the quart jars, you're gonna wanna fill it just to that first line because when you place the full quart jars into the water bath it's going to displace a lot of water and you don't want it overflowing and uh, dousing the flame under your pot. I'm speaking from experience this has happened to me before. You will probably want to fill it a little bit above that line like about an inch above that line because there will be some evaporation. You also want to make sure you have enough water in the kettle when you put the jars in because uh, you don't want to be trying to add a bunch of water. At the end, the jars do need to be fully submerged for the canning process. At this point, you can also add a tablespoon of vinegar to the water. This is kind of a trick I learned from some old school preservationists. They say that it prevents the jars from becoming cloudy. It keeps them nice and clear. And then once you get the water in the pot and you get the jars all washed, you'll want to put the jars into the water bath. And you do want to do this while the water is cold because you want the jars and the water to heat up together. And then you want to turn on the heat under the water bath. The jars will heat up with the water and once they've reached boiling, you can set a timer for 10 minutes. And once they have boiled for 10 minutes, then the jars are officially sterilized. So we've got all of our equipment. We've got a large canner that will hold seven quart jars. And it's got sort of a basket on the bottom that keeps the, the jars off the bottom. 
and it also can assist in lifting them, though I hardly ever use it. Instead, I use what's called a jar lifter, and it's a sort of, it kind of looks like tongs, but it's specially shaped that allows you to pick up a jar by grabbing it at the lid. And you can do this with one hand and pull it out of a canner or set it into a canner. It's a great tool. I do not recommend canning without this. You can, you know, come up with some sort of makeshift pot to do your canning in if you have a large enough stock pot and you can find a way to get the jars off the bottom. But when it comes to the jar lifter, you really need to purchase a canning jar lifter. Okay, so I've got my jar lifter. I've got my canning pot. It is filled with water and it's on the stove heating up. I've got my 25 pounds of tomatoes. I've completely cleared off some countertop space in my kitchen so that I can really spread out and do all these tasks. I have a towel, clean towel laid out, which is what I'm going to set the jars on when I'm filling them. And I've got a baking rack, which is what I'm going to set the jars on once they come out of the canning bath. The other thing I'm going to need is a small cloth made of t-shirt material. You don't want uh, something that's going to shed lint. This is something that you're going to use to wipe the rims of the jars before you put the lids on and that ensures a proper seal. The other thing you're going to need is a bowl and you're going to want to put your lids in that bowl. So the canning lids are a two-part thing. You need seven rings. The rings you can reuse, so if you already have some of those, that's great. The canning lids, the flat disc that goes on top of the jar, that has to be new. You can't reuse those. So you can purchase those. Um, they come in a small box. They're made by Ball, and you can find them in the kind of baking, canning section of your grocery store. And you want to make sure that the lid size matches the kind of jar that you have. I have a mix of wide mouth and small mouth or medium, you know, regular mouth jars and I happen to have both types of lids. The other thing you're going to need is some lemon juice or some citric acid. We're going to add that to the tomatoes. The other thing you're going to need are two pots. One is going to be for boiling water and the boiling water we're going to use to blanch the tomatoes. The other pot is going to be used for the tomatoes themselves. You're going to put the tomatoes in that pot as you're processing them and getting them ready to can. The other thing that you're going to need is a bowl and some ice. So you're going to want to take those lids, the seven rings and the seven flat lids, put those in a bowl and pour some hot water over those. So you can heat up some water in a kettle or you can grab some water from your canning bath and just pour that over them just to kind of wet those lids. There's a little rubber ring around the top part of the lid and you just want to get that kind of warm so it assists in sealing the lid. So to process the tomatoes, first they should be washed, uh, rinsed off in water, and then we're going to blanch them. And the blanching is what is going to help us remove the skins. It's important to remove the skins when you can tomatoes because when they get canned, they tend to be kind of tough and unpleasant to eat and not great to cook with. So you definitely don't want to skip this step. It does add another tedious step to this process, but 
it's just part of what you have to do if you're going to can tomatoes. Okay, so to blanch, you're going to take your tomato and I recommend slicing with a paring knife, just a small X somewhere on the tomato. I usually do it up by the stem. You're going to boil a pot of water on the stove and then you're going to dip some tomatoes in there. I usually do about five at a time. You're just dunking them in there for a minute or two and that's going to cause the skin to kind of split and you can see it happening. And then you fish them out of there with a slotted spoon and drop them immediately into some ice cold water in a bowl. And I usually have that in the sink. Then the skins will slip off very easily and you can core the tomato, just cut and cut out any part that you don't think looks great or any part that's too firm or something like that. And basically kind of trim them, get the core out and trim them. I usually just use a paring knife because then you're also gonna cut them. If they're large tomatoes, you're gonna cut them in quarters. And then you're gonna drop them into a pot and that pot is gonna be set on low and simmering on your stove. We want to make sure that the tomatoes are nice and hot before we put them in the hot jars because you don't want cold food going into hot jars. It can cause the jars to break. So get your tomatoes kind of stewing on the stove. You're not trying to cook them or anything. You just want to make sure that they're nice and hot when you can them. Because processing the tomatoes, peeling them and cutting them up can take some time, your jars might be hot and sterilized before you're ready to can. If that happens, just either turn the heat off or turn it on to low and just let it sit there and then turn it back on and get it back up to boiling before you're ready to can. Okay, so I'm gonna take some of these tomatoes and I'm gonna slice a X in the skin. This just kind of helps assist in that uh, peeling process. Okay, and I've done that to about five of these tomatoes and I'm going to drop them in the boiling water. Okay, so I've got my water boiling on the stove and I'm gonna carefully lower these tomatoes into the boiling water. You can use your slotted spoon for that just to um, reduce the possibility of a splash. And then just sort of keep an eye on them and as you see the skin start to split, then fish them out and take them over to your cold bath, which is your big bowl of water that has ice in it. The cold water acts as a shock, which again assists with that skin coming off easily. And this is a point where it can be really useful to have two people working on this project because one person can be focused on blanching the tomatoes, another person can be focused on coring and cutting them. Once they're all blanched, you can both focus on coring and cutting them, and then you can both work on getting them canned, getting them into the jars. It just goes a lot faster with two people. I find that the easiest way to do this is to put my knife in and go around the stem part of the tomato and just take out that core. And then a lot of times the peeling will just kind of come with it and then it's quick. In terms of cutting the tomatoes, you don't have to 
make them pretty. You don't have to cut them in any particular way. Just think about the fact that you're going to be cooking with them, usually in like soups or sauces. And so they don't need to be pretty, but you do want to get all the core out and you want to get all the peels off. Okay, so I got some of these tomatoes peeled and cut up and now I'm going to put them in a big pot that I'm going to keep on the stove on a low simmer. So I've got my tomatoes blanched, peeled, cored, cut up, and they're now heating up and I ended up having to use two big pots on the stove. And I've got my hot jars ready and it's about time to start filling the jars and getting ready to do the actual canning. So for the amount of tomatoes that I had, which was close to 30 pounds, it took me one and a half hours to process them and that includes blanching them, peeling them, coring them, cutting them up, and now they're heating up on the stove. Definitely want to keep an eye on them while you're heating them up. You don't want them to scorch on the bottom and ruin your whole batch. So just keep an eye on them, keep the heat on low, have the lid on, keep stirring them every now and then just to make sure that they're not scorching on the bottom. One thing I will say about heating up the tomatoes first, some people just cold pack their tomatoes and can them that way. They don't bother to do the stage of heating them up in a pot on the stove before canning them. I did that once. I think it might've been the first time I did tomato canning. I did cold pack of, I think pretty much whole tomatoes. And when that cold tomato in those jars hit that hot boiling water in the hot water bath, several of them broke. I mean, the bottoms just, fell out of them. All the contents of the tomatoes went into the boiling water bath. It is what you would call a catastrophe. It was very upsetting to go through all that work and have all of that product ruined. It happened to several of the jars. So I did some investigating, found out what I did wrong, and now I always make sure that my tomatoes, whatever product I'm putting in the jar, is hot so that there isn't that temperature differential that can cause a jar to shatter. Next, you wanna set up your canning station. So what you're gonna want is a dish towel folded in half, laid out on your countertop. And that's where you're gonna put your hot jars when you take them out of the hot water bath, the empty hot glass jars. And then next to that, you're going to want to put a hot pad and then you're going to put your pot full of hot tomatoes right next to the towel. And then you're going to need a ladle. The other thing that comes in really handy for canning in addition to the special jar lifter is a special canning funnel and this fits right into the jar and it has a little bit wider opening so it just makes the filling of the jars much easier. So you're going to want all those things plus your small cloth made of t-shirt material that is damp and ready to use and your jar lifter. And then it'll be time to start moving the jars from the canner onto the countertop and then start filling them up. Thank you. 
The other thing that you're gonna wanna have ready is some measuring spoons. You want a teaspoon and a tablespoon. You're gonna want either bottled lemon juice, not fresh, needs to be bottled lemon juice, or citric acid. You'll be adding two tablespoons of bottled lemon juice to one quart jar, or if you're using the citric acid, it's just one half teaspoon. The citric acid comes in a crystalline form. It looks a lot like sugar or salt, and you can find it pretty easily. I buy mine at World Foods Market here in Bloomington. It has no flavor, so it doesn't affect the taste of your tomatoes, but I have also used lemon juice, and it also does not affect the flavor. Once it has been canned, it kind of boils out that flavor. You don't really taste it. The only foods that you can can in a hot water bath canner are high acid foods, and that includes all fruits. Now, tomatoes are also considered a fruit. They're also considered high acid. The problem is that over the years, tomatoes have been bred to be sweeter. And the concern is that perhaps not all varieties of tomatoes are acidic enough to be safe for hot water bath canning. So as an extra precaution, you add some acid to each jar to ensure that they are safe. The reason you don't want to use fresh lemon juice, you want to use bottled lemon juice, is because it is stable and regulated and has a specific amount of acidity that will work for lowering that pH or raising the acidity, however you want to look at it, to make sure that it is the proper amount for safe hot water bath canning. The other thing that you can add to your tomatoes is a little bit of salt. That's not required. Most people just choose to add the salt when they're cooking with the tomatoes. Do not add any other ingredients to your tomatoes. If you do, you are running the risk of botulism. Don't do it. Enough said. So my jars have been boiling. They're hot and they're ready. I'm gonna pull them out of the canner. So you just grip the jar with the canning jar lifter. Tip the jar over to pour out that hot water and transfer it to your towel on the countertop. And you can either put the lemon juice and, or the citric acid in the bottom of your jar before you've put the tomatoes in, or you can put it on top. It doesn't matter. It will get mixed in during the boiling process. I'm gonna go ahead and put it at the bottom because I don't wanna forget. So I'm adding a half teaspoon of the citric acid to each jar. So I'm ready to fill the first jar. I'm gonna put the funnel on top of a jar. I have my pot of hot tomatoes next to the jars. I've got a slotted spoon and a ladle and I'm gonna start filling. So what I usually do is try to pack it mostly with tomatoes and not get a lot of the juice in there so that each jar is fully packed with tomatoes. You don't want a lot of extra juice in there. 
You fill each jar leaving a half inch headspace. And you wanna take something like a wooden spoon or some kind of plastic utensil and kind of go around each jar to make sure that you get out any air bubbles. Once all the jars are filled to within a half inch, leaving a half inch of headspace, which is about the height of the you know, screw top of the jar, then you're gonna take your soft damp cloth and go around the rim of each of these and get it ready for your lid. You wanna wipe all of the threads of the jar and that top part where the glass meets the lid. This is a really important step. You do not wanna skip it. And your lids should be warm. You can dip them in some boiling water or pour some boiling water over them. And just set the flat part of the lid on top and then get your screw bands and screw those down. And you're just screwing these down hand tight. You're not using all your muscle or getting out a vise or anything. They just need to be hand tightened. And now the moment we've all been waiting for, it's time to lower the jars into the canner. You want to make sure that there is at least one inch of water covering the tops of the jars. They need to be fully submerged. They cannot be, the, lid, the jars lids cannot be sticking up out of the top. If that is the case, if some of your water has evaporated, then you just want to be sure to add some boiling water. Just quickly boil some water in a kettle or in a pot on your stove and pour it in there. And do not start timing it until they are fully submerged and have reached a full boil. So turn your heat up to high and make sure that they reach a full boil. And once they have fully started boiling, then you can set your timer. Quart jars of tomatoes need to be in the hot water bath boiling for 45 minutes. For now, while those jars are processing in the canner, we can tidy up the kitchen and take a break. This is Earth Eats, I'm Kate Young, teaching you how to can your own tomatoes at home. We'll be back after a short break. Stay connected. Subscribe to the Earth Eats Digest. It's a bi-weekly email with food stories, updates on the show, and recipes from the Earth Eats archive. Go to eartheats.org to sign up. Thanks for listening to Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young. And today we are taking a deep dive into the canning kettle.
learning how to preserve Indiana homegrown tomatoes in jars to enjoy all winter long. Whenever I talk about home canning, it's important to include warnings and safety information. There are a lot of myths out there about home food preservation. I'm here to tell you that home canning is a perfectly safe practice, but you have to follow instructions. And those instructions need to come from trusted sources, namely land-grant university extension offices. Places like Purdue Extension and the University of Georgia's Extension Office, they offer hundreds of publications with research-backed information on canning and preserving any food grown in the United States. Those are trusted sources, or the book Putting Food By, and I'll put links on our website. This is not the project to consult YouTube about. I have watched videos with unsafe canning practices, which is why I feel the need to give the following lecture about hot water bath canning and its limits. Bear with me. When you add other ingredients to your tomatoes, such as garlic or onions or herbs or other ingredients that you might use to make, say, a pasta sauce or pizza sauce, you are changing the acidity level, and that can make it not safe for hot water bath canning. What makes hot water bath canning safe is that the acidity level of the food that you're canning makes it an inhospitable environment for any pathogens to grow inside the jar after the canning and after the sealing. There are some pathogens that can survive the heat of a hot water bath and the anaerobic environment of a sealed jar. Those pathogens include botulism, which is deadly. So do not mess around with this. Or let me repeat it again. The only thing you can can in a hot water bath canning method are high acid foods without low acid foods being added. So that is gonna be all fruits, tomatoes with added acidity, or pickles. Once you've got vinegar involved, then your acidity level is also safe for hot water bath canning. So pickles, ketchup, chutneys, those products have enough vinegar in them that you can safely do those in hot water bath canning. Otherwise, you've got to use pressure canning. If you want to make some pasta sauce and you want to can it, you're going to need to investigate pressure canning. That's a different process than what I'm teaching here. It's not that hard, but you do need a special pressure canner and you do need to, you know, follow instructions and know what you're doing, but it's fine. You can do that. Just don't try to hot water bath can your pasta sauce. One of the things that's sort of on the border of what's safe to can and what isn't safe to can is salsa. You can do salsa in a hot water bath canner, even though it's got the added onions, garlic, and peppers. But you can only do that if you follow a, sp a specific canning recipe, which includes the addition of a sufficient amount of either vinegar or bottled lemon juice, but you've got to follow a canning recipe, preferably from an extension office or from the book, Putting Food By. Those would be the two resources that I would recommend. 
Okay, lecture over. Let's get back to our jars of tomatoes. I think they're ready to come out. Okay, our timer has gone off. The jars have been in the hot water, boiling hot water bath for 45 minutes and it's time to take them out. Grab our handy dandy jar lifter. When you pull them out of the bath, you wanna pull them up straight. There's a temptation to kind of knock, tip them a little bit to knock off the extra water, but I have been taught that you should keep them straight and the water on the top will evaporate because they're very hot. The seal happens when they're cooling, not when they're in the bath boiling. And transfer your jars of tomatoes to a baking rack. Leave them there to cool completely and your jars will seal. They'll make a little sound, a little clicking sound when the sort of domed part of the flat lid will suck down in there and make that seal. You'll hear that and you'll see it. Once they are completely cool and all the lids have sealed, at that point you can remove the outer ring of the lid carefully, not disturbing the flat part of the lid and then you want to wipe down the threads of the jar and then they're ready to store and they can store at room temperature. I think a basement's a good place to keep them but you can also keep them in your cupboard and they're good for up to a year. If for some reason one of your jars doesn't seal, then just use that one right away. If you want to go to the trouble of completely recanning it, you can, but you need to kind of do the whole process over again. Which, to be honest, I ended up doing this time. No regrets. And that's it so easy. Okay, yes, there are a lot of steps, but once you've done it a few times, it really clicks and everything falls into place. I've been canning for almost 15 years. I've taught many people how to preserve food, and some of them have become avid canners themselves. And it's a fun project to do with a friend or with family. Feel free to send me a message if you have any questions. I'm happy to help. You can write to eartheats at gmail.com or follow the contact link at eartheats.org. If you're listening to Earth Eats on the radio, did you know it's also a podcast? You can listen on your own schedule and never miss an episode. Search for Earth Eats on your favorite podcast app and subscribe. If you have a moment to leave a comment, we really appreciate it. It helps other people find our show.
For decades, Midwest teenagers have been hired by seed companies to walk fields of corn and help out with the pollination in a process called detasseling. It's fondly known as a local rite of passage. But an investigation by the Midwest Newsroom found seed companies have posted jobs to avoid teenagers and opt for migrant workers instead. Nebraska Public Media's Will Bauer reports for the Midwest Newsroom. Okay, so these are Cooney Cooney pigs, K-U-N-E, K-U-N-E, and they actually are a red meat. Heather Scar owns a pig farm near Adair, Iowa, a small town a little over halfway between Omaha and Des Moines. In addition to her specialty pigs, she ran a detasseling business. For 11 years, Scar hired teenagers to pull the tassel off the top of corn stalks, preventing self-pollination, for both Bayer and AgriLiant Genetics. Many detasseling contractors, like Scar, say the ritual is important for the Midwest, one that's possibly being lost. Earlier this year, AgriLiant called her and said they were going with migrant crews. Scar says that's a blow to Midwest teens. They learn those qualities and character-building opportunities, I guess, that detasseling provides. I mean, we're going to lack that in our rural communities now that kids can't do detasseling. Today, seed companies increasingly rely on temporary migrant workers visiting the U.S. with H-2A visas. For example, Syngenta, one of the biggest seed companies in the country, fills a quarter of its detasseling workforce with migrant labor. The caveat? the H-2A program wasn't built to supply a workforce, just fill in the gaps. And Nebraska's labor commissioner, John Albin, says there's hundreds of middle and high schoolers who want these jobs. But he says he found seed companies sometimes posted jobs that act as barriers for teens. Here's what he found. Unreasonable experience requirements, setting the minimum age at 18 when 12-year-olds can legally do the work, detasseling crops that don't need it, and working all the way into October. You don't have to be an agronomy major to know that nobody's detasseling in Nebraska in October. Albin raised those concerns with the U.S. Department of Labor. Now Albin and his team can veto job requirements they find to be deceitful or disingenuous. And they get most of them, which ideally opens up the hiring process for more local teens. That's not exactly happening, Albin says. It seemed to us that there had been a decision made at somewhere in the corporate structures of this that they wanted to move away from having youth working in their fields doing the detasseling process. On the flip side, H-2A contractor Javier Chapa says migrant workers are helping where they're needed. Chapa contracts business with Remington Seeds, a company with a plant in central Nebraska. H-2A need to be here because we have to keep the economy moving. And, and we're not talking just for Nebraska, we're talking for all over the United States. For the most part, H-2A workers come from Mexico in search of better wages, where they can make more here in a few months than they could in a year back home. Chapa says his company made the transition to H-2A workers around 2013. That's when he says he started noticing teenagers weren't applying for the detasseling jobs. We don't find enough people wants to do the job. And I understand the reason because it's a hard work. I mean, the youngest generations, they go to school to... Try not to be on the fields. A spokesperson for Syngenta said the seed company needs flexibility for detasseling. When a field needs to be detasseled, it's got to get done. Having a mixture of local teenagers and migrant crews allows that flexibility. Danny Reynaga is a lawyer that specializes in farm workers' rights in Nebraska's panhandle. 
He says yes, companies choose migrants because they want productivity, but that can lead to violations. The fact of the matter is that H-2A workers are vulnerable uh, to, to a large extent. Most would say probably more vulnerable than U.S. workers for a variety of reasons. Many H-2A workers often don't speak English, and farm worker advocates say migrants may not know their rights or fear what could happen if they speak up. In Lincoln, 13-year-old Daniel Miller got waitlisted for a detasseling job this year. His mom did the job when she was a teenager. So I thought it would be a cool thing, fun, well not really fun, but maybe fun, <laughs> something to do that would get me some money. Miller is already 5'9", perfect for grabbing the tall corn tassels. He and his mom hoped detasseling would be a good first job this summer. He wants to save up for a PlayStation. He says he plans to apply again next season. For the Midwest Newsroom, I'm Will Bauer. This story comes to us from the Midwest Newsroom, a collaboration among NPR and public radio stations in Iowa, Kansas, Missouri, and Nebraska. That's our show. Thanks for listening to Earth Eats, and we'll see you next time. Seeds is produced and edited by Kate Young with help from Aobon Binder, Alex Chambers, Mark Chilla, Abraham Hill, Daniela Richardson, Peyton Whaley, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from the artists at Universal Production Music. Our executive producer is John Bailey.